Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to another week of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge and I was joined by Shelly Billinghurst, the smart one of the duo. <laughs> oh, you're so charming. Serge, thank you so much. Speaking of smart, boy, do we have an incredible guest on today. I am so honored to be able to introduce Dr. John Sullivan. He is truly one of the thought leaders, if not the pinnacle of thought leadership in all things talent management. Dr. Sullivan, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I want to jump in because I am just so curious on your journey into talent management slash recruitment. Was this always your goal in life was to do what you're doing today? How did you get here? Yeah, I've been in in recruiting for literally 50 years. I got my undergraduate degree in personnel in 1969, and I've been in the field ever since. What struck me is whenever I went to get a job when I was in college, everything they did was wrong. And I knew it even as a student. What are your strengths and weaknesses? I got 200 weaknesses. Would you like to hear them first? 50% of all hires fail. The top business problem, not HR problem, among CEOs for eight years running has been talent management. Now board members have found it to be the top issue. So we don't do it well. And when I examine from a scientific standpoint or data-driven standpoint, most of what we do But it's the same as everyone else, so there's no competitive advantage. But second, it's just broken. And if you look at anything we do from interviews to resume screening, it just doesn't work. So I was chief talent officer, part of HP. I wondered if we were screening our people well. So I took five of our best engineers, changed their name, changed HP to Intel, sent them through, without telling anybody, our resume screening process, Guess how many got picked? Our top engineers, two out of five. Really? And and I sent our CEO through. He went to a school that was pretty good, but he had bad grades. We wouldn't have rehired our CEO using our criteria. So that's what gets me angered. And if you say asking strength and weakness questions work, prove it, because it doesn't. They know about it. They all have an internet. They've all pre-tested this. So if you think interviews are not pre-tested, you're crazy. Yes. What happened after HP? Where did you go after that? I live where Apple and HP and now Google and all these companies are. So I would just invite them to campus. And then I would tell my students, well, ask them this or propose that. And they liked it. So I'm going, maybe I should do this more often. So I started writing and then I got calls and I've been to Rogers Communications. I've been all sorts of places in Canada. And the most famous speech in Canada was, if you can't find good candidates or good people, you're an idiot. <laughs> how, did, how did that go over? Initially, <laughs> Canadians are always polite, but initially it didn't go over well. But after a while, if I said, let's go to a convention of engineers, can you find women? Well, that would be hard. Just look around. Can you find diverse people? That would be hard. Just look around. So finding people is easy. When people say, I can't find people, you are an idiot. (laughs) You can't sell them. That's different. Yeah. I've written many times. Sourcing is gone. It's all computerized. Interviewing will be computerized. Selling is the one remaining area we need to be good at. Can you sell Wayne Gretzky and move him from L.A.? That takes some effort. But finding the best hockey player? If you can't do that, 
You really are an idiot. <laughs> well, I, I think you hit a point that's really clear as far as hiring is really hard. Finding people is easy. And we talk <laughs> about what talent acquisition is compared to HR. And that's a perfect story right here because we are hiring HR people to do recruitment. Do you think that's part of the issue, John? Oh, I would never hire HR people. They're not aggressive. Here's my idea of recruiting. You're Google and across the street is Facebook. Where do you get the best people? From the unemployment line? Out of college? No, the best people work across the street. Write that down. <laughs> when you're at Facebook and you say, I can hire the best person from Google, you know what their CEO says? I will get the talent of this person, but Google will lose that talent. I love that. My ship will rise and theirs will sink. I don't know anybody in recruiting who thinks that way. So hiring unemployed people helps the unemployment role, but it doesn't hurt your competitor. We even have an article on Hire to Hurt. There are companies that do that. They won't talk about it on your podcast, but you hire to hurt. You take away their best hockey player. And the next time you play, they won't win. And you have them, you will. I don't know any recruiter. Maybe you do. But everyone's polite and they look for unemployed people. It's like, I don't know if you're married, but the best people are married. That's not my fault. You're going to have to fight for them. And one of my phrases is, if you're fishing and you reach down and you can catch the trout with your hand, they're dead. You don't want them. One of our criteria at HP was... You have to fight for them. If you don't have to fight for them, there's something wrong. Well, I, I think you hit a point that's really interesting because a lot of recruitment right now is not really recruitment. They're advertising a job and candidates come in and generally it's either active or passive, but it's tough to say in this current environment because so many people are switching jobs. Putting that in perspective, why is sourcing not as important? Why are recruiters not doing that anymore? They don't measure quality of source, so they don't really know where the best people come from. Of course, if you're going to hire a, a top hockey player, you have to fight for them, and you're going to have to sell them because they don't want to move to the U.S. or whatever the issue is. Sourcing is so last year. I don't know why there's still sourcers. You can find anyone. The number one source everywhere in the world is referrals, but not just any referral, top performer referrals. So I go, Shelly, who's better than you at this podcast? And you mentioned Surge. What do I do? I'm going to call up Surge. It's really about poaching top people from other companies who are happy. So I don't call them passive. They're not passive. They have a good opportunity. Mm -hmm. Selling someone who has a good opportunity is a lot harder than someone who's desperate. And what's wrong with unemployed people? They don't like me say this. Their training is old. In the world I live in, if you haven't done Python in two months, you're a dinosaur. When you're at home, you can't have the latest equipment. It's not that there's anything wrong with unemployed people. It's their skills are outdated. And in our world, you need to update your skills maybe every three months, but at least every six months. And that's one of the criteria we use. Are you doing the same thing now you were doing a year ago? Then the answer is, we don't want you. If you haven't learned new skills, we don't want you. And all interview questions are stupid, but try this one. What have you done to prepare for this job? What's your plan? What are you going to do to learn about this job, about your team? What's your plan for the first month? And 90% look at you like, huh? Because they're not planning ahead. They're not planning on learning. It just turns out the best people want to do the best work and they want to learn. And it's not about money. There are plenty of players, at least the NBA, that take jobs at the lowest pay 
just to win a ring, just to play alongside LeBron. They do get the money. It's not the reason they choose. You have to pay them their money in some cases. You need to survey your top people and say, why do you stay in your job? You could go anywhere. And the answer is almost always, it's the work. So when I read a job posting without laughing out loud, it talks about the requirements. It doesn't say the funnest damn job you've ever had. Working alongside Shelly. Sell your mother. Take this job. <laughs> That's probably my biggest soapbox as well, is just how incredibly lazy job ads are. And, yes. and for me, what I believe it boils down to is that you're just lazy. You couldn't be bothered to put in your best effort to even write it. But they don't know what triggers a response. I have this joke. It's like LeBron, nine foot tall. He's walking down the street. You know, in those street corners, those little plastic newspaper stands that say job. Can you imagine him bending down to pick up one of those newspapers to look for a job? No, not ever. So if you survey top performers, literally 90% get their job from a referral. Mm -hmm. And it's not anybody. It's other top performers. If you only go to your top performer and say, who dunks on you, Serge? Who's better than you? You will find the best people. Now, by the way, LeBron might not be able to leave this year, but you put him on your pipeline, keep in touch with him, and you mm -hmm. get him next year. Yep. I want to dig into a couple of topics that are very current in the world of work right now and in talent acquisition. And as I told you before, is we do cite your articles quite often on the recruitment flex. And there's one that I recently read because a hot topic is inflation and it's causing challenges for organizations when it comes to recruitment and probably most critically retention. Your article, you dig in onto solutions or some ways that recruiters can arm themselves and be ready to deal with this. What's your advice here to a recruiter that's dealing with high inflation in their state or in their country, and it's causing some challenges when it comes to recruitment? My first answer is always be data-driven. You need to find out why people take a job or stay in a job. And if you're making $20 an hour, Guess what? Money matters. But it doesn't matter if you're making 400000 or your stock's worth a million. So I call it perception. It's not what you get paid. Some companies are perceived as paying well when they really don't. It's your perception of your pay. Our benefits save you $10,000 a year. Our promotion rate is twice as high. We give more developments. We upskill you. We re-examine pay every six months. Everyone else does it every two years. And here's Glassdoor, where people say it's I'm well paid. Me saying as a recruiter, who we all know why, oh, you're going to get paid well, means nothing. It's just BS. But when you go to Glassdoor and employees say, I was paid well, I was developed, that's what matters. Because when you look at what causes people to leave, it's not the money. When you ask people the day that they leave, let's say, Shelly, you're my boss, and you ask me, why are you leaving? I'm not going to say because you're an asshole. Correct. Because uh, I'm not. I'm it, not. Oh, okay. But it'll fact, <laughs> Nobody know, leaves me. We know that because <laughs> we do what's called post-sex interviews where you wait six months, have a neutral party call, and this one company had zero cases of sexual harassment reported on the exit interview, but they had 10 on the post-exit. Wow. So if you want the real answer why people are leaving, it has to be data-driven. Recruiting is 100 times better than retention. There's no one in charge of retention. 
There's no one who does post-sex interviews and no one really personalizes it. You have to find out why this person would leave. So when mm-hmm. you do exit across a lot of people, it might be money. They say that on the first day, but they don't say it six months later. And you have to separate people and personalize it. So that's possible with these computers now. You can personalize it. So we hold what are called stay interviews. Why do you stay? Well, I get to work with Surge. We were thinking about separating you. Maybe we shouldn't do that. And so being data-driven, you find out, not in general, in particular, what motivates people. And then when their house burns down, you go back and say, I'll bet they motivated by money now, and you change it. But mm-hmm. people want to be treated like individuals. And my approach is always stolen from business. So in sales in business, you don't say all people in this industry the same. You personalize your sales approach. And that's what we don't do in retention. So let's say you're LeBron and you're a really good basketball player, and we give a cross-the-board raise of $1,000. Whoopee. It will have no impact on him. Yeah. Yeah. You can't do it across the board, but almost all retention is across the board. What you need to do, which is what a stay interview is, we want you to stay a long time. We appreciate your work. And LinkedIn does the very best. And it is simple. Just tell me why you stay, and we'll reinforce those things. And they will stay forever. There's a lot of smaller companies or other companies that have a challenge of actually recruiting because they just can't compete financially, whatever the case is. What advice? I've, you- I've got to, Sergio, I've got to stop you. Money doesn't matter. Would you stop it? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. John. Money always matters in some way. I agree with all your point, but it does when you're a small company competing against talent for a large company that has a lot more resources. It it matters because the small company has to do a better job at selling and it has to be creative. As you mentioned, if you're going to compete against Google, well, you got to have a different playbook than Google has because you're going to lose. For those companies that have issues going out to the market and are are challenging, there's different sources they can leverage. Let, Let me push back. The data does not support what you're saying. Small companies have an advantage. How do startups get people? They got no money. They got three-legged chairs and old computers. How do startups recruit? Because you're changing the world. So the number one reason after the work is purpose. You're changing the world. And you're a small company CEO. You can change the world. People listen to your ideas. You can do multiple things. At Google, you'll be put in a corner and do some shitty job that no one wants. Oracle once called is like, I don't want to be fixing a broken program that your dad wrote. Said, no. <laughs> oh, Start my God. Have that is advantage. the best line. <laughs> yeah. That is so true, right? Because yes. Oracle is like. And now they're moving to Texas. So you'll be in Texas. If you live in Vancouver, you ever been to Texas? They've got big spiders, too. Who wants to live in Texas? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's not true. Top performers, innovators do not work for money. They want to change the world. Lower level people need money. That's true. But then you need to separate your recruiting to people that want to change the world, that want to do great work. And so Google, no offense, slow down. The, the companies that I look at are Google, Amazon, and Netflix. They manage differently than anyone else, and they're data-driven. And so if you can show me I'm going to invent something, I'm going to have more patents at a startup, it's a lot easier. But I'm going to get to know the CEO. You're never going to meet Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. No. So then talk about the frontline workers. So those that are 
um, hourly workers and those that it does matter whether or not I can put gas in my car to get to work. If you pay me $15 an hour, I can't do it. So I will cross the street for $16.50. There are many organizations who do not want to reduce their profit margins because wages across the board has a long-term effect. It's worse than that. It goes on forever. A bonus and a hug doesn't go on forever. A raise goes on forever. It's ugly. And by the way, when you give people a raise, their performance doesn't go up and they don't stay longer. We did a study on stay bonuses. (laughs) It's a joke. You give someone $100,000 to stay, they stay for six months, but the whole time they're there, they go, my job sucks. And they tell the world. Yeah, and I hate it here. Is yeah. that a good investment? No. And then they quit anyway after six months. And okay, hope I don't want to offend anybody. Nobody really cares about the hourly workers. So you have to prioritize who makes the most money for a company. Innovators. There's nobody close. Get top performers. Now, if you're a lower level top performer, great. But if you're not, it's easy to replace them and a little more money will get them. I did some work for Starbucks and I'm driving by one of the Starbucks. This was when they were just starting. I had a big sign. So we pay $8 an hour. And I go to the Starbucks guy, you idiot. You're just saying that you should come to work for us because of money. And people will come to your work for the money, but they'll quit the minute someone offers a dollar more. And you will never see that sign again at a Starbucks because you don't want people that work for money. And I have an article on that, too. There's lots of people, including me, don't work for money. We have a rule at our company. No one tells me whether I'm getting paid or how much because I shouldn't change my approach if I'm trying to change the world of recruiting. The bottom performers, no offense, (laughs) you don't win games by the Gatorade guy. You win games because of LeBron. You need to prioritize your recruiting and say, if we lose a few of these, it's just part of business. But we can't afford to lose the managers or the top performers, but most important, the innovators. If you call me into a company, all I do is say, what makes you the most money? Innovation, product innovation, customer service innovation. Let's hire innovators. And whatever they want, which, by the way, is not money. They want a chance to try the new idea. Another example I had, this one company was recruiting this person. They kept saying no. I said, how long does it take them if they were hired? to to spend a million dollars on their new idea. They literally said it would take two years because the budget cycle and this, that, and the other. And I go, then you're an idiot. This person can go to a startup and they'll spend that money in six months or three months. The idea will be implemented. And if it doesn't work, they don't get offended. But you have to give them a chance. Innovators are by far, Steve Jobs says 25 times more. Google calculated at 300 times more. Now think of this, an innovator, you produce 300 times more revenue than the average Google employee, which by the way, is almost $1.5 million. Every employee at Google generates a million and a half dollars. That's pretty good, isn't it? If you're bringing in Apple's $2 million per employee, includes the people in the store. Whatever I pay you is irrelevant. Because you're bringing in $2 million. So, yeah. so you need to look at revenue per employee. That's how you measure productivity and say, no, it turns out if I hire innovators, if I hire LeBron, everyone else will want to play with him. So you touched on it, but I loved the article that you wrote 
about the rise of the cold-blooded leader. (laughs) And we've talked about it actually on our podcast. So I was really on the fence about the Bitcoin CEO that was like, we don't want anybody here if you're easily offended. If you're woke, don't bother applying here. And part of me said, I applaud him for being authentic because you don't want to work there. And not every company has to be your ideal employer because if I'm an innovator, what matters to me is, yes, maybe their mission or what they're doing. But can you talk about your thoughts on why these leaders are now coming out and saying things that seem to be controversial, such as don't bother working here, or if you're not willing to do a minimum of 40 hours, go work somewhere else. Where is this boldness coming from? It's the world. The world moves fast. It's called a VUCA world, V-U-C-A. It's a volatile world. People copy things instantly. So you need to be competitive advantage. You need to be constantly moving fast. Guess what? Calling your employees together on one Friday every month and asking what they want, consultation, inclusion, whatever you want to call it, slow. And when you tell all your employees we're thinking about this, the son of the guns will tell the world and your competitors will know about it. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, there's a wonder kind, you know, Elon Musk that you just go, shit, the guy is so smart. I'll go with it. But the shareholder, the global competition, speed and adaptability. So they have no choice. And right now the power has shifted to the employee, but that's not lasting. It hasn't been around for a long time. It's no, you need to say, I need to make decisions fast. When I involve the employees, the decisions get better. And unfortunately, the answer is no, because they're woke people. But the world might not be woke. Your shareholders don't really care about that. And your competitors don't. So the market has changed and it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. You compete against Uganda. You compete against people around the world for the fastest, best product, customer service, whatever. And that requires fast decision-making. And it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And SpaceX, five employees passed around a petition to say that we should do this. But they all got fired because you can't talk in public. So one of the new foundations, within friends, you can talk whatever you want. But if it gets out, you will not have a job because it hurts the company. And if you look at Tesla's price, it goes up and down like crazy, partially because the CEO is a nut, but the other is because people leak. Mm -hmm. So can you just come back to something you just mentioned? I want to hear you talk more about the power of the employee. Do employees really have more power or is it just a temporary perception? Is that really at the heart of why we're saying these are cold-blooded leaders? But in fact, the leaders are just taking back the reins. Yes. So I've done a lot of work with GE. If you remember Jack Welch, I do. Neutron Jack, because he laid off 10% of his workforce every year. Guess what? Netflix does that now. So no, it's courage. I didn't know that. <laughs> HR people are chicken. They don't want to fire people. They transfer them. Come on, you aren't no HR. That guy's a jerk. Let's transfer him. It can be a jerk some other place. No, we don't fire people. <laughs> so one of my things is you should fire more people. One of the studies, this was the federal government in the U.S., you're more likely to die at your desk as a manager than you are to be fired. That's not a good data point. 
<laughs> oh my god so that's why the bottom 10 yeah. percent at aol was it was the bottom 17 percent because we're making a lot of hiring mistakes it's a fact mm -hmm. i have an article on it 50 percent of all hires and 70 percent of all ceos fail within 18 months it's horrible we're not good at this so when half your hires fail why wouldn't you get rid of them why would you cry i don't cry when a bad player leaves we have a party once I had a CEO, he yelled at me. I'm just a consultant giving advice. I'm talking about offboarding and how we ought to treat people differently. And he said, I don't understand it. When someone leaves, we give them a party. And when someone comes on board, we give them a stupid VHS videotape that's three years out of date. That's wrong. And that was 20 years ago, and he's still right. We do not celebrate new hires. We do not assess new hires and say sorry. I have a quality of hire measure. You go to the manager six months later, we hired Shelly. Simple question. If Shelly's job was open, would you give it back to her or would you reopen the hiring process and look at others? Over half would look at others. That's not good. The grass is always greener on the other side as well. And there's always a perception that there's someone better than the person doing the job that that's not always the case. I do want to drill in a little bit. We talked about the power of the employer and the employee, but we've seen a shift. Our economy is going into some pretty hard times in the near future. How do you think that's going to affect the current labor market and the dynamics that we see right now with a real imbalance in supply and demand when it comes to talent? Serge, if I can push back, companies go in recession. If the world's in recession and you're not, who cares? By the way, if you're a large company like Google, someplace you do business is in a recession all the time. So the new world is grow rapidly, shrink rapidly, same time simultaneously. Any questions? So if you're an electric car company and you make batteries, you expand that. But if you make hybrids, you decrease it. You say there's a shortage of talent. Let's say I'm a hospital in Vancouver. And you say there's a shortage of nurses. No, there isn't, because I can see the hospital right down the road. And there are 5,000 nurses at that place. There is no shortage of talent. There's a shortage of ability to recruit it away, to sell it away. Now, an economy might have a problem, but I don't work for an economy. I work for my company. Google gets 3 million applications a year. That's a shortage? Yeah, but not every company is Google. No, come on. Why not? They wrote a book, if you haven't read it, Work Rules. The yeah. guy who ran Google got fired because he gave away their company secrets. Uh, Lasso Brock, right? Yeah. Yes, I, I read that book and it's a fascinating one. That's the new world of HR. That's the way. It's data-driven. It's experimental. You try things. So the question I mentioned before, when you want diversity, what's the best way to do it? Would it be having diversity recruiters? And the answer would be no, not ever. Because in order to get diverse candidates, you need a selling skill. You don't need to look like them. Don't disagree. Then the, why don't you look at some diversity departments? So 76% of diversity departments have no goals. How can you possibly do anything with no goals, no measures? I think it's 95% of all diversity goals are not met. That's horrible. A lot of the time what we've seen happen, CEOs came out and said, hey, we definitely want to establish a strong diversity, equity, inclusion program and strategy. 
but there's no money that's ever put behind it. So it usually falters in some ways because there's just no investment or a realistic way of following true with an actual strategy is what the data has shown. Okay, but it's not the money. It's not data driven. They don't know what attracts diverse people. They yeah. don't know where diverse people are. Yeah. So everything it's data driven. I know people that meet all their diversity goals, but they don't do it with money. It's referrals. If you're black or you're a woman or you're disabled, you probably know other women. Tell them how great it is. And Google also found that, by the way, when you're going through the interview process and you're a woman and you don't see any other women, you don't say yes. So the answer is always be data driven. Find out not for the world, but for your company. Why do people not want to be attracted to it? Maybe it's because of this, that, or the other. But one of the things I did for Facebook is, why don't we do a survey of your women and say, how have you been treated here compared to other places? 90-something percent said this is the best place I've ever worked for the treatment of women. Candidates take their breath away. It's not some recruiter saying it, their own women saying it. And some of the stuff, like the way we interview, is just hard. Google found that you'd have a better odds of hiring the right candidate by flipping a coin than yeah. their interview process, that's not good. But guess what? They still interview. Now, they do it with the hiring committee, which is much better because let's say you're a manager at Google, you hire once a year. You're not going to be good at it. You're not going to be good sure. at selling. But if you have a manager who hires three times a month, they're going to be good at it. So they learn that. It's like the secret to good recruiting is having people that can sell uh, and assess, and that takes a lot of experience. So it's one of the only companies, Amazon being similar, that know they don't let managers hire. Well, managers don't like that. I've been hiring for 42,000 years, but you've been doing it wrong. Yeah. Yes. And nobody wants to hear that. The things that you brought up, I know you speak the truth. I'm bought in, like I'm a fan. <laughs> so tell me what you would predict as maybe being a disruptor. And I'm crossing my fingers what I think you're going to say, but you've surprised me throughout this whole episode. So if I can push back, as I always do. So when people say they believe, which is favorite HR phrase, it yeah. says, I don't know. But mm -hmm. I do know because my secret is being data-driven, but I don't borrow anything from HR. I borrow from business. Mm -hmm. So if you look at customer experience, these people in the business side know it better than you ever. Virtual reality, you name it, AI, we don't know shit in recruiting. We can't spell AI. So <laughs> here's one, quality of hire. Literally, you can read thousands of articles. I know. Oh, Everyone says, don't get me started. Oh. It's really difficult. No, you're stupid. <laughs> okay. If you're older, Six Sigma. Remember that in 1980? I do. Every department learned yeah. Six Sigma, which is three errors per million. We have a 50% error rate. That's unbelievable. Yes. So the oh. answer is you steal from business. Business is so far ahead of us. If you want a candidate experience, find white glove customer experience, and you will see them a template. So of all the articles I've written, I don't have any ideas. I steal them from business because not only are they better, but they're proven the work. And we're never ahead, not ever. Business is ahead of us. You're going to find that Google found that the best people don't go to the best colleges. Best people don't even go to college in some cases. So no one cares if you hired 42 people. No one cares. When you hired LeBron, did we win a ring? That's what matters. And so we have to shift to what I call business impact talent management, where when we hire someone or train them or develop them, they produce more, they innovate more, whatever. And the other thing is 
we're hung up on people who are so woke <laughs> that sometimes the answer is people suck. They want overtime. Mm -hmm. They want retirement. They get sick. They won't come in when there's a forest fire, but robots will. So every time we make a decision to hire, we should be saying, maybe software could do this. But we don't because we're people first, stupidest thing in the world. You need to be productivity first, innovation first. And it turns out top performers or innovators really do innovate better than robots. But when you said frontline workers, robots got that one. That game is over. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Nobody yeah. wants to do that shitty work for shitty pay. And robots should do it. So here's a prediction for you. HR is going to go away. It's got to go away. It's going to be taken over by the COO because the COO is the one who lives or dies based on their talent, based on the innovators and their business people. HR people are psychologists. And that's the problem. You need. So when I used to hire people in HR, you have to have worked in the business, period. No excuse because no one listens to you because you don't have credibility. But when you work in a business, you do it totally different. So you look for results metrics. You look for customer satisfaction. You look for Six Sigma. And when someone says it's too hard to measure quality of hire, it's like, you really are an idiot. <laughs> so the COO is going to take over because they are data-driven. They are focused on results. We're not. And I don't know how to fix it. Even at Google and Amazon, it's a struggle to be business-like. Well, it is very challenging as we uh, were talking about a podcast last week. Amazon is actually running out of workers in the LA areas and many other areas in the next couple of years. But this has been fascinating. I'm so glad you came on after years of reading your articles on ERE.net and on your website. If people listening wanted to find out more about Dr. John Sullivan, where would you send them? To a, a business person to mentor them. <laughs> but second, it would be, uh, we have a website, drjohnsullivan.com, where Perfect. all your articles are. But, you know, talk to business people, find out how they do customer service or interviewing or whatever it is. See if it's close to us, because it's usually not. My ideas come from business people, CEOs, people that innovate and say, let's do it differently, like a Steve Jobs and graduate. But he had these crazy ideas and he actually measured the performance of an average engineer and it was 25 times. So when you tell me I have a hockey player who's 25 times better than the average, and I can tell you how to get them, that, that makes a big difference. So be data-driven, experiment, run data, see what works, see what doesn't, assume everything's obsolete, because it will be, and copy the business, hang around business people, ask them, how would you do it from a business perspective? I mm. love that advice. Perfect. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. This was great. And for anyone looking for him, so you're on LinkedIn, also drjohnsullivan.com. <laughs> Thanks again, John. My pleasure. Thank you. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. 
Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.